Hi, my name is Chandler Clegg. And I'm Daniel Ortiz. And this is Humanized History, the podcast about adding color and vibrance back into history where it may have been lost. So today I'm here with my friend Daniel to talk about the Spanish-American War and also to revamp my podcast. It's been about a year since I've made an episode, kind of got out of it, but I'm ready to get back into it. I'm going to remove some of the episodes that I feel like didn't necessarily fit into what I want this podcast to be, and I'm going to get back into making episodes uh, more consistently. But today, uh, I brought my friend Daniel in to talk about the Spanish-American War for a very specific reason. So why don't you tell him a little bit about yourself? Well, hello, everyone. Now, the biggest reason that we're going to be uh, approaching the uh, Spanish-American War in this uh, revamp is because I'm Chandler's, Chandler's um, Spanish friend. But I also happen to speak very good English, not to be arrogant. And so it's a very good opportunity to have a real-life gringo and a Spaniard <laughs> talking about this uh, war between us, but we're all friends now. (laughs) So, uh, first off, I thought it would be really interesting to do this just because of the perspective of how the Spanish-American War was taught in, you know, my high school, an American high school, versus his high school, a Spanish high school, just to see, you know, what is covered, what they talk about, you know, how each side portrays the other side. And to kind of, you know, dive a little bit deeper into it and try to point out, like, the main problems without looking at it from uh, a point of view where you're a little too opinionated. Mm -hmm. So we thought that maybe, uh, whereas sometimes in in U.S. high schools, um, the Spanish-American War might be relegated to, like, a footnote in in the history books, uh, we really wanted to explore the Spanish perspective but bring it to an English-speaking audience. And uh, <clears throat> granted, the, the Spanish-American War was a much more significant issue in Spain than it was in the U.S. It, it was completely a crisis uh, in, in its time for, for the Spanish. So um, without further ado, we're going to get first into the Spanish perspective, the early history and lead-up, uh, just to give you guys some context. And then Chandler will do the same with the U.S., and then we will all come together for the actual war uh, and consequences. So here we go. Okay, so let's start with the Spanish perspective. So, the year is 1557, and 30-year-old 30, 30 Philip II, this uh, skinny, blonde kid, son of Charles I of Spain, faith of Germany, has inherited pretty much half of the known world. Uh, and this included all of Portugal's colonial empire, thanks to the magic of, you know, marriage between houses, um, and as well as the Spanish colonial empire in the Americas, uh, Flanders, parts of Germany, parts of Austria, uh, and the Philippines later on. So this is pretty vast stuff, and I'm talking about this because we have to understand that the Spanish empire of the 15 and 1600s has nothing to do with what you're going to find in the War of 1898. Uh, So throughout these two centuries, Spain, through a mix of just poor foreign policy and and sometimes bad luck, uh, and certainly poor ruling, is going to progressively lose most of its holdings uh, in Europe and then later on in America as well. Uh, I, I, think, I think of the decline of the Spanish Empire, I think it starts uh, when Spain gets bogged down in a war with the Protestants in Europe, and specifically also in Flanders. Um, uh, Spanish author Juan Eslava, my favorite historian, by the way, would uh, refer to it as, quote, <clears throat> The whole thing turned into a sort of Spanish Vietnam. 
Universal resting sp uh, place for Spain, Spanish writer Quevedo would call it, that consumed troops and taxes only to end up losing it anyway, referring to Flanders. Uh, so desperate was Philip that he even resorted to alchemists, who he supplied with a laboratory in the hopes that they might be able to create silver. So uh, another thing, uh, interesting thing to point out is that actually all of the wealth coming in from the Americas, uh, silver, tobacco, all sorts of goods, wasn't actually kept in Spain. In fact, the Austrian uh, kings, because they came from Austria originally, cared little about uh, Spain, actually. And most of this wealth went to Swiss bankers, as it does today, pretty much, to finance these wars against pretty much everyone, honestly. And so uh, throughout sixteen and 1700s, Spain would continually, continuously be worn down by these wars. And thus we arrive at the 1800s. Uh, the 19th century was certainly a very, very turbulent time for Spain. Uh, very disastrous, actually. And uh, we're going to get into a few reasons why. So, first and foremost, the 1800s in Spain start off with the Napoleonic invasion. Uh, now, you know, Spanish leadership wasn't exactly bright about this. But long story short, Napoleon invaded Spain without basically firing a shot. And then, you know, later on, there, there would be revolts and uh, stuff like that. But initially, he just kind of tricked the, the Spanish king at the time, which admittedly, he was kind of an idiot, <laughs> um, into just allowing uh, French troops to go into Spain under the pretext that, oh, we're just going to invade Portugal. Uh, now, it is important to remember that the Spanish House of Bourbon was allied with France, as it, it did come from France. Uh, so, you know, they did not kind of expect this backstabbing, but still, very poor choice of uh, allies there. And so, uh, this, the American colonies, seeing that uh, Spain had had its, quite frankly, ass handed to it by uh, France in this war, decided to start to seek out more uh, independent routes. And uh, Islava, again, my uh, favorite author quotes, the American colonies which had tasted liberty during the isolation provoked by the Napoleonic War, decided that they were mature enough to self-govern. Emboldened by the example of their older brother, the United States, they exploded in independent movements. Bolivar in the north and San Martin in the south defeated the Spanish garrisons. Uh, now, during these years, the Spanish king was Fernando VII. He was put back into power after Napoleon was defeated, and he quickly quashed all liberal uh, trends, let's call it. It is important for this podcast, for the context of this podcast, to note that liberal, as we refer to it here, doesn't actually mean uh, what you guys would think it means in 2020, as in like Democrat or something. It just means, uh, let's call it enlightened values, more like 18th century stuff. Uh, so free market and all that stuff. So Fernando VII quickly quashes all the liberal pretexts that the that Spanish rulers wanted to undertake. He becomes quite despotic and absolutist. And uh, during this time, he is, is when the, the American colonies start to you know, leave the fold of Spain. And to, to prevent this, he tries to send an army, actually, uh, to uh, the Americas. And what ends up happening is very interesting because he was such a despotic ruler that the army turns on him and and deposes him. And that was pretty interesting, actually. So this this young colonel called Del Riego, 
uh, turns the, these troops on the king and tells him, you're going to abide by liberal values now. And the king's like, okay. You know, he just wants to remain in power. But secretly, what he does is he sends a letter to uh, other European absolutist houses begging for help. Just come rescue me, please. You don't want Spain to be an example of revolution, do you? And so what's that, what ends up happening is that European powers send an army to quash this rebellion and end all, you know, pretexts of liberalization in Spain. It is now the middle of the 1800s, and at this point, only Cuba, Puerto Rico, and the Philippines make up the remnants of what was once the vast Spanish Empire. At this point as well, uh, Cuba has more trade relations with the U.S. than with Spain, and that's going to be important moving, uh, moving on. But for now, let's point out also that, that uh, in 1868, after years of coups and several constitutions, because as we said, Spain had a very turbulent 19th century full of civil wars and stuff that we just don't have time to get into, but rest assured, uh, there's a revolution called La Gloriosa, the Glorious Revolution. And basically, the working classes, the pose, the then-queen Isabella II, really wasn't her fault. She was basically just mandated by other generals in the army and stuff, because, you know, sexist society. Uh, either way. And so, the Spanish government, mainly the army, which had also helped in the revolution, starts to look for a new king. They find a young Italian-looking dude from Italy, so... Um, and and for a year we have an Italian king. Uh, however, he was so just fed up with the entire complexity and ungovernability of the Spanish system that he just gives up and leaves a year after. <laughs> At this point, Spain has a little bit of a Republican uh, experiment. Again, in this context, Republican doesn't mean like Trump. It just means republic. So Spain has a one-year Republican experiment. It also fails, and it ends up with another military uh, coup where they just bring back the Bourbons and they're like, you know what, Isabella II's son, he's just going to be the king now, and we're just going to roll with that. Uh, this revolt, however, it had some anarchist connotations and some, like, you know, working class kind of vibes, and it, it emboldened Cuban revolutionaries. And they started demanding, their demands were tariff reforms, Cuban representation in parliament, judicial equality with Spaniards, and full enforcement of the slave trade ban. Now, it's important to remember that at this point in Spain, uh, the slave trade was banned. However, in Cuba specifically, because it was so profitable, uh, the the higher, like, richer, you know, social classes had a vested interest in just keeping slavery going on. And so they worked very hard for that. And in Cuba, there were slaves still uh, in the 1860s and 70s. And so this was one of the main demands of the uh, Cuban revolutionaries. Uh, now, before we continue with the lead-up, we're going to do a brief interruption to talk about the Spanish political situation. So, in the 1870s in Spain, the political system was actually quite stable uh, after the revolution because this man called Canovas uh, basically created, he created this system where the, the main parties, which were both pretty much uh, enlightened, as in free market and stuff, they were the Conservative Party and the Liberal Party, but again, very similar. Uh, you know, the Liberal Party maybe had, like, more ample uh, suffragist, like, standards, uh, but that's about it. And so he creates a system with his opposing party, ruled by Sagasta, where they just take turns. There's, there's elections, but there's not really elections. 
they just rig them to their favor and pretty pretty much every five years they just take turns in power and this may sound pretty undemocratic and that's because it is but it did lead to a pretty decent period of stability in spain uh alfonso the 12 son of isabel the second comes back to rule however uh, a few years after he dies at the age of 28 having never really ruled that much and you know rule would fall and his unborn child, Alfonso XIII, and until he came of age, then uh, the queen regent, Maria Cristina Habsburgo, would actually be effectively the queen of Spain. Uh, in 1897, Canovas, the creator of the system, dies. He was a very, he was like the Spanish Bismarck, to put it in some way. He was very, like, good at politics, political games. And so, the death of this man, as well as, you know, the death of their king, and the, 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 surgeons of, uh, of socialist movements like the Spanish PSOE party, the Partido Socialista Obrero Español, which could be familiar to some of you because actually as of like yesterday, they are now in power in Spain, so they're a pretty long-standing party. Uh, they begin to pop up, and, and as I said, Canovas dies, and this creates a little bit of instability just a year before the, uh, the Spanish-American War. Uh, but now, you know, having examined a little bit of the political situation in Spain, we're going to go back to the lead-up. Just wanted to do a little bit of a context kind of decision. So, as we were talking about, this uh, revolution that happened in Spain also sparked some revolutionaries in Cuba. And so in 1868 starts the Guerra Grande, the big war, because it lasted 10 years, and because there's also a small war, like, shortly after, for like about a year. We're not really going to get into that one, because really not a lot happened in that one. But during the big war, uh, it was basically just insurgents, guerrillas, stuff like that. Cuba didn't really have like an army, so to speak. It was it was more just like people taking arms against Spain, and it was it was kind of like Spanish Vietnam number two. Um, and eventually, in 1878, it's quashed by General Martinez Campos um, in the Peace of Tanjón. Uh, some freedoms were given to the insurgents and they were pardoned actually and some freedoms were given to Cuba uh, not many it's not satisfactory for the revolutionaries it is a step forward but it wasn't enough and as we will later see it, it would not be enough um, and actually General Martinez Campos would say quote I am even less of a liberal than you and I deplore certain liberties but the times require them so this is what he said to the Spanish government uh, telling them, like, hey, we, we have to, like, you know, cut these guys some slack, because if not, we're going to lose Cuba. Um, so the whole thing was also beginning to wear down Spanish society, uh, much like Vietnam. It's actually strikingly similar to Vietnam in, in some terms. Uh, Spain had a draft. One-fifth of every young boy had to serve in, in the army, 19 years of age, usually. Um, and so, and usually, the thing, the thing about the, the one-fifth is that if you were rich, you could buy your way, your way out of it. So for the most part, the army was made of illiterate, working class boys who were, you know, demoralized and stuff and treated badly. And and that not only uh, was bad for Spanish society, uh, but also severely hindered the performance of the Spanish army. And so, uh, you know, having not met the revolutionary's demands, the war starts again in 1895, uh, led by people like Martí, an important Cuban revolutionary. I wish we had more Cuban sources here to talk with us today, but, you know, 
I can't get into that one too much, but all you need to know basically is that uh, Martinez Campos, the previous general, failed to quash this rebellion. Rebellion? Sorry. <laughs> I'm getting a twang from the south. But um, <laughs> he, he failed to quash this rebellion, and so Spain sends this guy called uh, Whaler. I can never really pronounce this guy's name correct, but the point is, this guy was a kind of kind of an asshole, for, for lack of a better word. Um, and he, he used the system of, of reconcentraciones, which essentially meant, um, since the war was insurgents and guerrillas, he didn't want the local population supporting these people, and he also didn't want the insurgents to be able to meld in with these people, so he took pretty much all the civilians and concentrated them in towns. So, uh, imagine there's like 15 towns in one area, well, you take all of those, and you just put all the people in one town. And that's how you get to uh, basically you know, root out uh, the insurgents. Now, it worked, but also it caused uh, famine, uh, unsanitary conditions, both for the Cubans and Spanish soldiers alike. Uh, it caused severe supply line issues. And ultimately, it was very unpopular. It really damaged Spain's uh, international image. And it would be actually part of the reason why the U.S. would start to get interested in intervening in this conflict. Uh, now, at this point, uh, in 1897, uh, the government of Spain gives autonomy to Cuba. They're like, you know what, we just want to end this war. Here's your demands, you guys. Here's autonomy, here's self-government. Just remain part of Spain, and we're all going to be good. And the Cubans are like, no. Now, at this point, you know what, you had your chance. Now we want independence. Uh, the U.S. is also peaking at this time, and Admiral Cervera of the... Navy suggests just cutting Spain's losses. And he says, quote, It seems conflict with the United States has been averted so far, or at least postponed. But it could revive unforeseen, and each day I am more convinced of the idea that it would result in a great national calamity. I shall be patient and carry out my duty, but with the bitterness of knowing that my sacrifice will be in vain. So that was a little context from the Spanish perspective of the lead-up to the war. Um, now I'm going to give a little bit of a, a lead up to the war from an American perspective. So the American perspective kind of begins with George Washington in his farewell address when he states, quote, steer clear of permanent alliances with the foreign world. George Washington believed that the United States was a very fragile republic um, the Founding Fathers knew this. The Founding Fathers believed that a republic was the best form of government, but they also believed that republics were very fragile and that any any uh, outside forces could, at any given point, tear down a very fragile republic, which was, at that point, the United States. Um, so George Washington believed this from the beginning, but as you will see... Uh, the United States government does not stick to this belief, um, as with many other things, such as how George Washington suggested that we never switch to a two-party system, which we ended up doing anyways. But uh, basically, after George Washington, um, you go a little bit forward, and you, we're talking about James Monroe now, and James Monroe came forward with the Monroe Doctrine. And the Monroe Doctrine was basically telling Europe to stay out of the Western Hemisphere. Like, you know, we're the big brother of everybody over here. Like, we'll handle it. Just stay away. Like, we don't want to deal with you. So basically, the Monroe Doctrine warns Europe to just stay out of our way. 
Uh, and basically from then on, the United States is simultaneously uh, an isolationist and an interventionist country because we stay out of the business, everything that's going on in Europe. We decide that we're going to take a step back and really just try not to get involved. Um, but in the Western Hemisphere, we do not do that with uh, Manifest Destiny. I mean, we conquer a, a good portion of North America, and the United States is constantly trying to get more land, but we kind of stay out of European affairs for the most part because, as I stated before, the Founding Fathers and politicians further on in the history of the United States realize that you know our republic is an experiment and it's very fragile and it needs to be coddled. So the Spanish-American War. Why is it important from a United States perspective? Well, from the perspective of the United States, it's really the first time the United States really becomes an imperialistic nation to the extent that it does after this war, which is interesting because we were just talking about this earlier. Yes. So um, it's very interesting because... I on the one hand, it is literally the dying breaths of an old imperial nation. This is Spain, this is Spain at their just very last, like little, uh, this is our very last colony kind of thing. Uh, they really didn't want to let it go, because Spain, you know, Cuba provided all sorts of raw materials and stuff. Uh, but on the other hand, it is also the birth of of U.S. imperialism. And let's point out that the 1890s is also when many imperialist like things are going on England is busy with like taking over half of the world uh, Germany's like doing the, the the Berlin conference to just you know cut up Africa like a cake uh, France is doing their thing like the US is just trying to join the club and and so we, we thought it's 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 very interesting in that, in that regard so in the lead-up to the war the United States started to get nervous when they saw a conflict going on uh, within Cuba against their Spanish oppressors. Um, the conflict in Cuba was worrisome because U.S. investments were valued at $50 million, and uh, it almost halted trade with Cuban ports, which I believe were estimated at around $100 million, which is insane and definitely provides reason for the United States to even at least think about stepping in. So, uh, can you provide me some assistance in pronouncing this man's name? Capitán General Valeriano Weiler y Nicolau. Also nicknamed the Butcher. Much easier to pronounce. <laughs> very, very easy to pronounce. I'm just going to stick with the Butcher for now. Um, but throughout the United States, uh, journalism was published, uh, basically saying that he herded Cubans into reconcentration areas where shelter, food, sanitation, and medical care were rarely provided for these new prisoners, and this resulted in the death of thousands. Um, later on, Joseph Pulitzer uh, and his paper, The New York World, and William Randolph Hearst's recently founded New York Journal began printing something called yellow journalism, which is basically an old term for what we now call fake news. Um, it's basically just profit-driven journalism at the world's expense. And this hit an extreme when the main sank, but we'll get into that in a little bit. Now, I think at this point, we should address, actually, the, the main elephant in the room. Haha. <laughs> uh, and that is because journalism, like, had, they had a legitimate criticism of Spain at some point because these were concentrations. They were happening, and Cubans were dying. Um, 
they were they were famined, they were driven there, you know, against their will, and this was happening. And Americans genuinely felt sympathy for these people. They, but they did. Did Spain sink the Maine? That is that is a question that I don't I don't think we can even answer today. But I will agree with what you said. But also you you can look at the facts that most of the people publishing uh, publishing these articles had never even been to Cuba before. Mm-hmm. They were just you know basically writing articles based on hearsay. So it is true Spain was cruel in Cuba, but perhaps some things were blown out of proportion. Oh, absolutely. To, to yeah, for profit-driven reasons. And the most uh, accepted theory today is that the main just up and blew up. Literally, shit just happens sometimes. And and the main might have just blown up. It was an early battleship. The boiler system wasn't really thought out that well. It was close to the munitions or something. Eventually, you know, it just blew up. And that can happen sometimes. Uh, it has been observed in the remains of the main that the explosion kind of like the the metal that was bent, it was bent like, like outwards, not inwards. So it couldn't have been a torpedo or something. Long story short, today it's accepted that the main just blew up. But this is not what this yellow journalism said. And that is what ultimately led to what takes place next. So basically, um, through this yellow journalism, support to stop the war and guarantee Cuban independence grew within Congress. Uh, And Congress began to argue for intervention, but at the time, uh, President Grover Cleveland, he did not agree. Although he did state that prolonging the war might make it a reasonable option to join in. Well, uh, after Grover Cleveland, President William McKinley takes office, and he held the same beliefs too, but he also admitted that standing to the side while bloody conflict continued just wasn't an option. Uh, So as Daniel mentioned earlier, in 1897, Spain uh, abandoned the reconcentration policy and granted limited powers of self-rule to the Cubans, but it was too late. Um, The insurgents wanted absolute independence and nothing short of it. And riots in Havana resulted in the United States sending the main battleship to protect U.S. citizens and U.S. property in Havana. And... uh, can I gain assistance in the pronunciation of this name again? Enrique Du... Oh, I, I can't pronounce this either. Uh, Enrique Dupudi de Lome. This is an interesting name. Well, de Lome uh, was the Spanish minister in D.C., and he wrote a private letter describing McKinley as, uh, quote, weak and a popularity hunter. The New York Journal uh, found out about the letter and later published it. Um... De Lome? Yeah. De Lome, resi- <laughs> De Lome resigned, and the Spanish government sent out an apology. Uh, but on February 15th, an explosion that destroyed the main battleship was set off, and more than 260 of the crew were killed. And it was never figured out whether Spain was responsible. But despite this, the New York Journal and other papers published Remember the Main to Hell with Spain, carry on with this tactic of yellow journalism and further convincing the populace that intervention in Cuba was necessary. Many uh, Republicans and Democrats in the country at large did not support intervention. U.S. business interests in general opposed intervention and war. Such opposition diminished after a speech in the Senate on March 17th by Senator Redfield Proctor of Vermont. Uh, He had just returned from a tour in Cuba, and basically he gave a speech where he mentioned the horrors that were going on on the island uh, and talked about what the populace was going through. 
and the Wall Street Journal stated that the speech, quote, converted a great many people on Wall Street. Religious leaders contributed to the clamor for intervention, framing it uh, as, you know, a a religious responsibility to go in and uh, stop what was going on there. Now, at this point, I think it's important to note that uh, Spain actually solicited um, an investigation. They, Spain actually wanted to find out, hey, who sunk the main? Because because they were freaking out, too. Like, in the government, they're like, oh, man, which is, you know, this could be bad. Um, and, and by all accounts that I found, the U.S. government just denied flat out any attempts at investigating the incident. They, they protected the, they, they weren't, people weren't allowed to go near the remains of the main. And, you know, the more conspiracy-driven of you might think that the U.S. actually blew the main up itself to have what is in Latin known as Casos Belli, basically a reason for going to war. Now, I don't think that that's necessarily what happened, but this trend of believing in, in false flag attack conspiracies would kind of start here and, and happen many times throughout the 20th and even 21st century. But I, I definitely don't think that Spain sunk the main. Um, I definitely don't think the United States sunk the main. But I would say that I think it would be more likely for the United States to have uh, sunk the main than Spain, just because the United States had a lot to gain with this war, and Spain really had everything to lose with this war. And a fourth uh, theory is that the Cubans actually sunk it. And this would kind of make, make sense, too, because the Cubans desperately needed some help in defeating the Spanish. And here's this, you know, fancy little ship that if we sink and and frame it correctly, like, this could really be good for us. So that's a fourth theory. Again, not necessarily what happened. Again, because people think that it blew up from the inside, which kind of makes it really hard for it to be an attack. Um, but that is a theory. But in all honesty, I think the ship just blew up. <laughs> yeah. You know... Technology isn't perfect today. It definitely wasn't perfect back then. Um, but basically, um, after the sinking of the Maine, uh, more pressure was put on intervention as Spain couldn't win the war and they couldn't do anything to please the Cuban insurgents. They tried giving them limited you know, self-governance and that didn't work. Um, and they weren't winning the war. Uh, so McKinley's response was to send an ultimatum to Spain on March 27th and he said, quote, let Spain abandon reconcentration in fact, as well as in name, declare an armistice and accept U.S. mediation and peace negotiations with the insurgents. In a separate note, however, he made it clear that nothing less than independence for Cuba would be acceptable. Uh, and Spain was not prepared for a war with the United States, and the odds were definitely not in their favor. Spain asked other European powers for help. Representatives from Germany, Austria, France, Great Britain, Italy, and Russia asked McKinley to not intervene in the interest of humanity. And McKinley responded saying that if intervention occurred, then it would be in the interest of humanity. Spain still refused to give up Cuban independence, and McKinley saw this as a necessity to restore peace and order within Cuba. And McKinley then stated, quote, The war in Cuba must stop. Uh, he asked Congress for the authority to use uh, military force and to, quote, secure a full and final termination of hostilities between the government of Spain and the people of Cuba. Congress then responded. They declared war on April 20th and said, quote, that the people of Cuba are and of right ought to be free and independent. 
armed forces were called upon and Spain declared war in the United States and then following Congress uh, then declared war on Spain and the war begins. Okay, so it is also important to note at this point, like back in the in the homeland, anyone who knew anything about anything knew that Spain didn't ch- stand a chance. It was this like people weren't stupid. Um, however, it was a matter of like, you know how we talked earlier about how the government was like trying to, you know, legitimize itself. The the, the House of Bourbon had returned. They really didn't want to like mess things up, and so they, for the sake of their own image, they just couldn't give up Cuba, even though that would be essentially what needed to happen in the end. The U.S. actually offered, after the main blow-up, the U.S. actually offered to pay $300 million for Cuba, and you can just leave. Uh, But Spain, just to save face, had to decline because it would be uh, unassumable for the government, for the government's image, to to have this this kind of scandal. And so Spain just has to go to war. Uh, It is also important to note, as we said, that um, even even admirals in the navy knew that they they weren't going to win, but they still went anyway. Yeah, it would mean it would mean them giving up, you know, the rest of their empire. They'd already lost so much, and it's like you know going to fight somebody, and you know you're gonna lose, but you kind of just have to do it. And it's and it's really interesting to look into this kind of like defeatist attitude because it was defeatist, but also like defeat with like pride kind of thing, you know, like Spanish pride or something. Um, and I have a really interesting quote. It's kind of long, but you know, it's very interesting. By Admiral Cervera, which was in charge of the Spanish uh, deployment in sent out to Cuba to deal with the Americans, or at least try to anyway. Um, and, and this is the guy that previously was talking about how dealing with the U.S. would be a lost cause. Like I, I, I quoted him earlier, and he knew, and he was a very smart general, and and he knew, but he was branded as a traitor in the homeland, and so he went anyway because. You know, his military pride just dictated that he had to go. And so he said, quote, uh, sorry, to his soldiers, uh, in the moment of actually going to battle with the U.S., he, 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 he talks to his sailors in his ships, and he says, quote, now for real, the solemn moment to fight has come, such as required of us by the sacred name of Spain and the honor of its glorious flag. I have ordered that you attend this encounter with the enemy clad in your dress uniforms. I'm aware this order may seem odd, as it isn't typical of combat, but it is what the sailors of Spain wear in solemn occasions, and I do not think there exists, exists a more solemn moment in the life of a soldier than that in which he dies for his homeland. Our old and glorious hulls are coveted by the enemy. For this, they've deployed all the might of their young power, but only the shards of our ships will they take, and they may only take our weapons when our bodies are floating on these waters that have been and are Spanish. The enemy outnumbers us, but they do not much match our valor. Hoist the flag and ne- let not a single ship fall prisoner. Long live Spain always. Men of my contingent, clear the decks for combat, and may the Lord greet our souls. So you know, it's it's pretty pretty defeatist stuff. Like these people, they they were dressed in their finest fashionista attire, just ready to go out and die. Yeah, and on the other side. You have the United States military. Um, the United States military, they had an, an amazing navy. Um, they had uh, new ships called the Indiana, the Iowa, the Massachusetts, and the Oregon. Um, they outmatched all of Spain's battleships. And also, 
you kind of have the opposite of what he was talking about with Theodore Roosevelt and his Rough Riders uh, who go in. It's, you know, Theodore Roosevelt, this young guy going in and basically just kicking Spain's ass and, you know, just gaining more and more popularity and really at the start of his career before he becomes president and everything. Um, but uh, we could talk about that more as we get deeper into the deeper into the war. And so at one point, the, the Spanish Navy stationed in Cuba has to maneuver through like some sort of like crevice kind of thing to position itself. The U.S. is ready for this, and they're waiting on the other side, and so they can actually perfectly, just like sitting ducks, they can shoot at every single individual Spanish ship that is going through the, uh, through the little crevice at the time because, you know, not all of them fit, so they have to pass one by one, and they're just sitting ducks. And so the entire uh, Spanish fleet is lost within you know, some weeks. I don't even know if it was weeks. Um, and and with very little U.S. casualties. Uh, it is also important to note that on the Spanish side, there was quite a bit many casualties, mostly due to stuff like dysentery, yellow fever, because fighting was still going on on the island, and these troops were poorly supplied. Uh, I have a quote here from Guerrero Acosta, a Spanish author on Spanish men in Cuba. Quote, Gambling and alcohol became companions of officers and enlisted men alike. Hardened by years of war and adverse conditions, insufficient rations, pay delays, corruptions of their leaders. The men were equipped and treated with great deficiency. Capitulation and the surrender of the island, decided without there really having been a military defeat on the ground, was a terrible blow to the morale of these troops who, despite their situation, carried out their duty. Now for the little gun nuts in, in listening to the podcast today, we can talk a little bit about the the weapon systems being used in this war. Uh, definitely not up to World War One standards, but it, it, it does start to look a little bit like a modern war. We have repeating rifles. Uh, the U.S. was armed with, a, with I think it was a Swedish Krag Jorgensen rifle, one of the early repeating rifles. Um, the Spanish were armed with a thoroughly modern, actually, especially considering the rest of the Spanish equipment was pretty obsolete. But the rifle they had was uh, the Mauser, I think, 1893 in the... If you're familiar with firearms, you know that the Mauser was, at that time, like, just a really good rifle for the time. Um, in fact, the U.S., after this war, would take a look, at, a long, hard look at the Krag rifles, and they would actually go on to copy the, the Mauser that they had captured from the Spanish, and, and they would have to pay royalties to the, to the Mauser company before creating the Springfield rifle, which will seem familiar to you guys. Um... I think also they had uh, in this war the early machine guns like the cold potato digger, the eighteen ninety four like machine gun stuff. Um, but yeah, it 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 did start to kind of look like like a modern ish kind of war. It was like basically like one of one of the last wars that the United States was involved in before we get into you know twentieth century warfare, mm-hmm. which is interesting. But basically, uh, the war is very short. Um, Spain didn't really stand a chance, as we've stated before. And, uh... It was difficult to supply, also, like... Keep in mind, uh... You know, folks, like, Cuba is, what, like... A seven-hour, eight-hour flight nowadays? Like, it is far. And and the U.S., I mean, the U.S., Spain had to go through great lengths just to supply, like, the bare minimum. And usually, there were supply issues, as we've seen. Uh, whereas, you know, the U.S. was basically fighting on their backyard. And and also, like, the U.S. was just a thoroughly modernized industrial nation with lots of manpower. Whereas Spain, at this point, had kind of failed to industrialize properly and was just not going to stand a chance. 
So, as I mentioned earlier, Theodore Roosevelt. And if some of you are hearing me say Theodore Roosevelt and saying, what is this guy talking about? It's Theodore Roosevelt. Actually, Theodore Roosevelt, uh, preferred his name pronounced Roosevelt, um, Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, was Roosevelt. Even though they were related, uh, it was pronounced differently for whatever reason. But just a little fun fact. But uh, at the time, Theodore Roosevelt was the Assistant Secretary of the Navy. And thanks to him, the U.S. ships had engaged in battle maneuvers. And they were supplied with lots of ammunition, and they were basically just ready for battle. And an army that included Roosevelt's Rough Riders landed in Cuba with the goal of trapping uh, Cervera between the naval forces and the ground troops. Uh, and Theodore Roosevelt and his Rough Riders, uh, if you haven't heard of them, basically it was him and this little company of soldiers, and they rode on horses, and it's really romanticized. It's really cool, but it's not that cool. I mean, the war wasn't even that long, but it's just kind of the beginning of Theodore Roosevelt's rise to fame. But basically, uh, they got there, and their goal was to trap Severa uh, between the naval forces and ground troops. And the Battle of... Oh, uh, the Battles of El Caney, El Caney and San Juan Hill. They were... Uh, heavily aided by Roosevelt's Rough Riders, which led to even further fame and glory for him. Uh, Cervera made an attempt to escape, but all of his ships were beached by U.S. forces. Uh, and at this point, the war basically ended, and Spain asked France for assistance in creating a treaty. Um, it was agreed that fighting would stop, but that Spain would also hand over power in Cuba and Puerto Rico to the United States. And uh, Spain also agreed that the United States should occupy the city and harbor of Manila until the war had ended officially and the peace treaty had been signed, and then they would determine what would happen with the islands. Um, and peace commissioners uh, were scheduled to meet in Paris for the Treaty of Paris uh, no later than October 1st. And taking over the Philippines was not necessarily a part of the plan for the United States, but victory at Manila brought the idea to the attention of the United States. Foreign nations such as Great Britain supported this. Religious figures saw this as a sign from God to send missionaries. And of course, uh, the white man's burden, which is basically a ridiculous argument that uh, certain peoples are not smart enough to govern themselves and that the white man should step in and control everything, which is antiquated and ridiculous. Yeah, this was a pretty, like, widespread idea in, in the 19th century, and, and Britain did this with, like, India and stuff, certainly France also with their colonies, and it was pretty much the main argument for colonialism at the time, which was booming. And, yeah, and it, it basically gave it... And the white man's burden argument uh, in their eyes was a justification for colonization. And that argument was also used in the takeover of the Philippines. And McKinley then decided that the United States must take possession of the roughly 7,000 islands and 7 million inhabitants of the Philippines. Uh, Spain reluctantly agreed to this, um, but they said that Spain uh, would have to be paid 
$20 million by the United States for public buildings and public works that they had created while they were in the Philippines. So the Treaty of Paris had signed uh, December 10th, 1898, um, and Spain gave up Cuba, and they gave up the Philippines, and they gave up Puerto Rico, and they gave up Guam, which ended their empire. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, shortly after, Spain would sell a few islands left that it had to Germany, and that was pretty much it for the Spanish Empire throughout the early 1900s or so, 1910s, 1920s. Um, Spain would participate, kind of, in the, in the conquest of Africa. It would occupy part of Morocco, parts of Morocco anyway. That's about it, though. It didn't really uh, get, like, the, the, let's say, like, good parts of Africa, Morocco was, the parts we had were basically like des deserted, and, and also, Spain actually lost a lot more than it gained in Morocco, but that's out of the scope of this podcast, we can talk about it an another time. Uh, however, I will bring up the Spanish defeat in, in Manila, it is uh, interesting to note that the Spanish Navy Manila was defeated in one hour, there was one US casualty, he died of heat stroke. <laughs> <laughs> and this is true um, and then Manila held out for a few months I think but eventually also fell uh, it is also important to note that Spain wasn't just chilling there uh, similar to Cuba Spain had been struggling with, with uh, insurgents and rebellions for some years now uh, going so far as to executing the main figurehead of these, of these rebellions and as the last kind of like Filipino segment uh, thing I'm going to bring up what in Spain is called Los Últimos de Filipinas, also known as Our Last Men in the Philippines. This is a contingent of 50 men who were sent out to a region called Baler. Uh, it's, it's kind of out of the way in the Philippines. It's certainly not, like, uh, let's say, communicated with, with civilization. So it, it's out there. And these men, 50 men, were sent out, and, and they were told to just hold up in this church and just keep it. I mean, not keep the church, but um, just, you know, hold this church for as long as you can, and reinforcements will come. And so these men, uh, you know, they, they were stationed there, and, and that's what exactly what they did. They held there until the war was over and after. They were there for 11 months, uh, besieged by 1,500 Filipino soldiers, well, insurgents, not really soldiers, but... 337 days besieged by 1,500 Filipino uh, insurgents. They refused to leave. They they held out all of their attacks, all of their cannonades. Spent sent Spain sent uh, sent out emissaries to tell them like, hey, the war's over, and they would just dismiss them as, as as tricks from the Filipinos to have them leave the church. They would they they were pretty paranoid actually. Uh, Spain would even contact the U.S. Uh, which was at war with the Filipino insurgents at, at this point, because this is like 1899. And they were like, can you please send a guy and tell these people, like, hey, I'm, I'm a gringo, like, you guys have to leave, we are in charge of the island now. And Spain, again, just greeted them with, with cannonades. Um, at one point, uh, what ended up happening is that a Spanish admiral was sent there, and he carried newspapers with him. And he said, you know what, my ship's departing in a day, Y'all better be in it. Uh, and they were like, you know, no, we have been told to stay here. And he was like, fine. So he left the newspapers, and in these newspapers, they were reading them in the church, 
uh, and this is, by the way, after months of famine and, 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 and yellow fever and dysentery in the church, so they're not doing so well. Um, they read the newspapers, and they're like, boy, this sure is one fine fake newspaper that they're trying to use to get us out of here. <laughs> but eventually, the, the lieutenant that was in charge, the captain had died, uh, read a piece of news that was unmistakably true, could not be faked, and he was like, damn, the war really is over. And so, uh, Borque, Spanish historian, quotes, On July 2nd, 1899, to the admiration and recognition of the besiegers, 33 shabby-looking Spanish soldiers, led by Lieutenant Martin Terezo, marched out of the church, proudly flying their flag. They would be greeted in Spain as heroes. And so that's all I have on the Filipino War. And... Basically, I'm not going to get into the Filipino War anymore because, you know, it's a completely separate war, but it goes on uh, after after the Spanish-American War once the United States gains control of the Philippines. Um, a completely different mess for a completely different day. But the war is over, and the United States seems to be a new budding empire and the once flourishing empire spain is now in shambles yes it is also important to note even though we're not actually getting into the filipino war that the u.s would lose many times the men fighting filipino insurgents than it lost fighting spain in the philippines i mean you know one guy heat stroke you know it's really hard to not to not beat that so <laughs> but now we're just going to get a little bit into the consequences uh of, of, of this war, both for Spain and the U.S. Uh, on the Spanish side, we have 60,000 dead. Uh, out of the blue, well, not out of the blue, from the get-go, 60,000 dead, mostly from diseases, and mostly just working-class boys, like 19-year-old illiterate boys from the working class, thousands of wounded and mutilated. Uh, the economic consequences were also quite tremendous. A loss of stream of cheap raw materials, uh, sugar and tobacco. Uh, politically, Spain lost all of the little international relevance that it had at that point. Uh, the armed forces basically collapsed, and the turn-based political system that we talked about also collapsed. The new colonial focus went on to Morocco, as we said, and of course it created a terrible dissolution and surge of regenerationist movements. The dissolution was because people in Spain before this war still kind of clinged on to the idea of the Spanish Empire. Uh, and, and they thought, you know, they we're still part of something greater. In the 1890s, for, for a few years, Spain's economic outlook kind of was positive. Uh, and this, this disaster, because it was called in Spain, like, Americans know it as the Spanish-American War. In Spain, it's, it's, it's known as the disaster of 98, or the crises of 98. Um, and, and this would just have a deeply, deeply, uh, bad impact on, on Spanish morale for sure. And so again, my favorite historian says, quote, the loss of the colonies and perhaps most importantly, the disastrous and humiliating way in which they were lost provoked a profound national crisis, new political forces, more aggressive and less prone to concessions tagged along the wave of outrage. On one hand, the Basque and Catalan nationalists. On the other, the Republicans and revolutionaries. It's important to note out, to note out, <laughs> to point out, sorry, that um, 
you know, Catalan nationalism is actually still a hot topic today in Spain. And you might have heard about it, Chandler, and, 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 and stuff's going on still in that regard. Uh, so this has a profound impact in that regard. And also, of course, the revolutionaries later on in the 30s would, would, would protagonize a, a, a kind of like a populist front that eventually governed Spain in, a, in the Second Republic and would lead on to the, to the Civil War and stuff. Again, not really in the scope of our podcast today. But it would, for sure, have very deep consequences. And uh, for the United States, so around uh, 3,000 Americans died in the Spanish-American War, which is a a much more minuscule number in comparison to the amount of Spanish that were lost. But diving even deeper into that, only around 379 American soldiers died in combat during the Spanish-American War. Um, Besides combat... uh, the Spanish-American War, as I stated before, brought the United States uh, to a place it hadn't really been before. Um, brought them from, you know, the United States started off as a colony, and now the United States was off acquiring its own colonies. And, you know, turmoil within the United States regarding imperialism uh, continued to grow more and more, as some people believe the United States should go out and acquire more colonies, and that it's the white man's burden, but then uh, some people thought this is wrong. Um, the United States started as a colony, uh, and we should help other people fight for independence. We shouldn't be oppressing other peoples. But uh, as you go deeper and deeper into the history of the United States, you see that continues to happen. And Of course, Cuba never really had the independence that it was hoping for. Uh, the United States would impose a constitution on the Cubans, uh, basically telling the new, the newly formed Cuban government, hey, this is the constitution you should have. If you don't vote it in, because, you know, you're free now, you can vote it in. But if you don't, there will be consequences. Wink, wink. Uh, and so the constitution that gives, that first of all is modeled after the U.S. and also gives the U.S. A lot of leeway in just doing whatever it wants in Cuba. It also gave them Guantanamo Bay, by the way, which is also still part of the U.S. today. Um, the Constitution is voted in by a margin of one vote. Very controversial, hot topic too. The would-be president of Cuba, which was he was the leader of the revolution. I keep forgetting his name. I'm sorry, but I think it was Gomez or something. Um, he was supposed to become the president of Cuba once the revolution was over. And the day of the of the like you know victory parade kind of thing. Uh, an, an agent knocks on his door and he tells him, if you even show up to like the vicinity of the event, you're going to be arrested. You're not going to be president of Cuba. Uh, so that's that's what happened in Cuba. And then we all know, you know, like Castro and all that. Like that, that would feed into the, the Castro revolution and all that good stuff. But again, that's not for today. But yeah, basically this shows the end of the Spanish Empire and the beginning of the United States Empire, which you could argue continues to go on to this day. I mean, look at what's going on in the Middle East. Look at what's been going on in the Middle East. Um, you know, uh, acquiring more and more oil and more and more land, uh, even if it's not necessarily, you know, bringing it in as a new territory of the United States, just using other nations and other territories for the betterment of the United States really took off with the Spanish-American War and really continues on today. Of course, uh, this topic being especially relevant today, as a few days ago, uh, tensions with Iran just skyrocketed. Uh, I'm sure you're all aware. Uh, 
Um, and of course, also, this would not be the first... No, this would be the first, but this would not be the last time that the U.S. would interfere with Latin American affairs. Uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with, like, the Contras and all that. So, yeah, but I'm, I'm pretty sure this is a nice way to wrap the podcast up. So, yeah, well, thank you guys for listening. Um, I'm really going to start getting more into this podcast, putting more episodes out, uh, making them better quality, uh, you know, better sound, uh, better content. Um, and if you enjoyed this episode, please, please subscribe to the podcast. Uh, please leave a review and I really appreciate you listening. Uh, I hope you had a good time listening in on me and Daniel's conversation about the Spanish American war and I hope you learned something new. Mm-hmm. Shout out to my high school history teacher for sending me a bunch of sources and shout out to Dan Carlin for inspiring me to do this. Dan Carlin, you're the goat. You're the man. Well, thank you guys so much, and have a fantastic day. Have a fantastic night. I'll see you soon.